0: It's good to see everybody here. I was um, such a good time yesterday at the citywide serve day. Um, how many people were out at the citywide serve day yesterday? Hang on, just keep the hands up for a second because that, I, look, I gotta say this. You can put your hands down. Um, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of our people. Like, you guys were out there. You were out there over, now, overall, there are over 200 people in our city. That came out from other churches and other organizations, um, but but we we had we led two projects. We were helping to clean up at the um, uh, by the old Sears building, Sears Auto Center, no longer. Um, so we were cleaning up around there, and then up in Eisenhower Park. And um, Jim Farmer and Andrew were leading that. And um, you know each of those those teams uh, did quite a bit. What what other uh, what other projects did we have going on? Fun Run, Fun Run was going on. We had San Diego Creek, I know was going on. Anybody in the orange trees? No? Okay, okay. Scratch that from the record then. Okay, um, anyway, I just, I, I, I just wanted to say, like, we had, we had numerous people come up to us, and I, I would imagine this was the case for all of you that were out there serving um, just thanking us for what we were doing in the community and people who just lived in the neighborhood. We actually served with one lady, Amy, who lives right over here, and she was like, this area just kind of, you know, there's a lot of trash here. So she was just, thank you. Thank you for leading this and getting this going. And we had people come up. It was just wonderful, wonderful time to love our city, and it was a great time. Um, and if you missed the, the kickoff, the, the, the mayor and the chief of police had a dance-off I, that didn 't happen I was actually i 'm making that stuff up but next year you 'll have to come to find out if that happens all right anyway that is good, good, uh, a good time of, of leading up to that and we 're just so grateful to partner with the other churches in our city um, to do that but i am I am you know whenever we gather with other pastors and I see our people i 'm like i 'm so proud of our people i'm just so proud anyway I yeah anyway so I feel that that's good hey, a few other things as we launch into this fall um, life groups are going you should be hearing if you signed up for life groups you should be hearing from your life group leader um, I, again we we have um, we have seven life groups that are going that has over doubled the number of life groups that we have. Um we have over 40 uh, we have over 55 people in life groups so we're it's very encouraging i feel like there's god is at work doing quite a bit um the other thing about life groups is we've made a little bit of a change to our bulletin and, um, you know, our goal this year is everybody who comes on a Sunday morning at some point is involved in a 10-week life group. We're having, this fall is going from, uh, we're starting this week or the next week and moving to uh, December, and then we have January to March, and then March to May. These are, there will be 10 weeks of life groups in each of those. And um, you don't have to sign up for a life group. It doesn't mean you're going to be with that life group for the next 20 years, um, although maybe some of you will. But you, it might just be for the ne- next 10 weeks, and then our goal is to have everybody who's here to participate in a 10-week life group over the course of the year. So in order to do that, we're going to keep it front and center. You will not escape this, everybody. I will find you and I will get you signed up for a life group. Um, And so uh, Sunday mornings, the only reason we have Sunday mornings is to get you involved in a life group. That's what, I'm just kidding. Um, But we do, (laughs) you joke, but that's what is happening. Um, uh in and thus it's changing me my life is being changed so they're actually in our bulletin we'll have a a sermon outline trust me that's life changing for me um because that means it gets in before wednesday um and that is that is like and then we have a little digging deeper area i wanted to call this the homework section but alana in the office was like hey craig Let's dial it down a little bit. No homework. Digging deeper. Okay. So before you come to your life group, there's some passages that relate to our to what we're talking about on Sunday morning, and then on the back of your. Uh of your bulletin, um, all the discussions for the discussion questions for life group are there. So we do, um, we don't just send them out to leaders. We will send them out to everybody, and you'll have a chance to do this. If you feel like at some point you're like, "Hey, my the people I go to lunch with, we just do these questions." If you want to be a life group leader, that's great. Sign up. That's awesome. We'll we'll find you. Like I said, um, we we know who you are. We're coming after you. Okay. A um, couple of other things. We've got we got our first baptism class. This 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 morning and we're going to have a chance on October 16th to celebrate baptism and hear some testimonies of people who have experienced life change because they've encountered Jesus. I mean that our, our hope here on a Sunday morning as we go through the gospel of John is simply this that you would encounter Jesus in a fresh way. We believe that there is light and life in Jesus. And so we want to put him front and center, and we'll be doing that again this morning. But we'll be celebrating baptism on um, uh, October 16th um, in here, and we'll have a little reception outside afterwards. Um, Yeah, anyway, there we go. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We continue our series in John, where John endeavors to tell the story of Jesus. We have. Three other gospels in the New Testament, and they all begin at different places. We talked about the Gospel of Mark, says, Oh, we got to go back to the beginning. We got to go back to John the Baptist. And and then Matthew and Luke are like, Well, we got to go back to the beginning. We got to go back to the birth of Jesus. John says one, does one more. We got to go back to the beginning, not just the beginning of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, but to in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and John is going to take us back and remind us that before Jesus was born, Jesus existed. And not only did he pre-exist before that, he is uncreated, the uncreated, self-existent Son of the Father. And John is one of the first of the New Testament writers to begin us down this tract of talking about Trinitarian theology, and we're going to have a chance to kind of, uh, to, to explore that as we go, go forward. And as Andrew read this morning, we are in the beginning of the testimony about Jesus Christ. And as John tells this story, just as the other gospel writers do, if you're going to tell a story about the life of someone, one of the things that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to find some eyewitnesses. Right? You're going to want to find people who walked with that person, who talked with that person, who understood that person, who were with that person, who ate with that person, who, who were with that person through their life, and who can give testimony about that person. So eyewitnesses give testimony, and the first person in the Gospel of John to give testimony about Jesus is John the Baptist. Let's look at 119 in the Gospel of John. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Let's all say that together. I am not the Christ. Let's say it again. I am not the Christ. One of the best things you can do in your life is just to get a sense of who you are and who you're not right? I think one of the best ways that all of us can understand is like, this is not about me. I am not the Christ. And I will say, I am not the Christ. I'm just a guy. And John's going to give us a testimony of who he's not as well as who he is. And then he's going to bear witness of Jesus. One of the cool things about this, if you're reading along and you, and you realize a lot of this language in here sounds kind of like legal language, like you're in a courtroom, like John is giving testimony and he's confessing. This is all the language of a courtroom scene and John, the author John, the gospel writer John, is beginning with this idea that if I'm going to tell the story of Jesus, what I need are credible eyewitnesses that can withstand harsh cross-examination. They can withstand, if somebody comes from Jerusalem, if an official contingency from Jerusalem comes down and starts asking them questions, they can do it and that's exactly what we have here that this is like a legal proceeding this passage is like a legal proceeding it starts with this word testimony if you look in one uh in 119 this is the testimony of John, the word in Greek is the word marturia. We get the word martyr from it. A martyr is simply this a martyr gives testimony. And in English, we have a hard time sometimes translating this because we'll hear like a, 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 a witness or a test, someone who gives testimony is also a witness. If this is the verb, the verbal form of testimony we translate in our bibles as bearing witness or giving testimony so sometimes it doesn't make it doesn't actually look like it but look at the very end of our passage at the very end of our passage in verse 34 it says i have seen and bore witness that this is the son of god that word bore witness is the same word as testimony And so what John is doing is he's he's bracketing this in here. Testimony at the beginning of this and testimony at the end. It's actually one of the favorite words in the Gospel of John. In the, in the book of, in the New Testament, the word testimony occurs 115 times, but 47 of those happen in the Gospel of John. Almost half of the occurrences of this verb and the other, the other, if you go all the way up, almost 75% of all this language occurs either in 1 John, John, or the book of Revelation. The idea of bearing witness, John sees himself, the gospel writer, as one who gives testimony and he finds someone, John the Baptist, who has come simply to do what? To bear witness, to give testimony because there is he is making a case in the gospel of John for who Jesus is. John is going to testify, he's going to confess, he's not going to deny, he is going to confess. And an official delegation from Jerusalem has come to interrogate him. And that's this scene. That's what we have here. Let's keep going. So and I guess if we if we keep going let's if we read in verse 19 When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? All right. So, a little bit. Let's just talk a little John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. I think he's a very fascinating figure. He is a bit of an odd bird. John the Baptist. I don't know if you've read a little bit about John the the Baptist. He wears a camel hair coat. Not like the one you buy at men's warehouse. Okay? Um, And he eats uh, locusts and honey. It, which means he lives off the land out in the Judean wilderness. We were in the Judean wilderness, were we not? It's a it's a stark place. And actually, at this place called Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found recipes for eating um, grasshoppers and honey. And that honey is probably maybe or maybe not bee honey. It's probably date honey. No extra charge for that little uh, little bit of uh, whatever we have there. But um, but John, this odd this odd dude, um, he is. And we read about him in other Gospels that he is of priestly lineage. His father, Zachariah, while serving in the temple, has a vision, an angelic vision, right? And, that, and this miraculous birth of John. And so he has priestly heritage, but he doesn't serve in the temple, does he? He goes out to the Jordan River. And look, you got to want to get to the Jordan River if you are in Jerusalem but there are people who come and, and flock out after him. He goes to the very spot where Elijah is caught up into heaven. He goes out there, and he starts taking people into the river. Like, what the heck? There's no, there's no precedent for this. He goes after this place where Elijah disappears, and he shows up dressed like Elijah, and he's eating grasshoppers, and he's got... I mean, it's like, what is going on? And so what... But people people are into it like people start going out to where John is and they start listening to him and they start walking into the Jordan River and walking back out and he's doing all this stuff at the very place where not only Elijah was taken up but where the nation of Israel came in in the book of Joshua the very same place where these two events happen John's out there and he's doing these he's actually re- he's he's dressed like Elijah he's bringing people through the water like what the heck and I think we, we kind of, if you've been a part of the church, you're like, oh yeah, John the Baptist, you know, I know all about John the Baptist. But you've got to understand, John the Baptist is like, he's like a performance artist. He's doing street corner theater that is super provocative. He's saying, if you want your sins forgiven, don't go to the temple. A priest is saying, don't go to the temple, come out here to the Jordan River what the heck? Like, the, it's almost like John is saying the institutions have broken down and we need to revisit these institutions. And so John is out there. And so the Jewish leadership of the nation, and by the way, every time in the Gospel of John, I think this deserves mention, especially in a post-World War II, post-Holocaust era, whenever John mentions the Jews, he's really talking about the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem so when he says that the Jews sent a delegation or in verse, in verse 19, it says, um, sorry, it says uh, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the Jewish leadership, they're like, something's going on. People are going out to this dude who's weird. Let's send some people out to ask him just this very simple question. Who the heck are you? Or maybe a better way to think about this, it just depends on who's asking the question, but not only who are you, but who do you think you are? And who do you think you are to offer forgiveness of sins outside of the temple? Who do you think you are to dress up like Elijah? Who do you think you are to call these people out? Like, who do you think you are? and i think there's great traditions about john the baptist i mean we could talk, i could talk john the baptist all day and we got we got to move on but i fascinating figure that is not we don't totally even understand exactly what everything that he is doing in it doing there so anyway so the leadership from the temple they send out a question and they're asking this question who are you And John's first response, John's first response, I don't know if this is your first response when people like, you're like in your life group this week, and um, they say, well, you know, could you say a little bit about yourself? I don't know if your first instinct is to say, I am not the Christ. Okay, it's good. I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it is a little odd if that's the first thing, but that's cool. Go with it, okay? They seem to think that they have some ideas about who John might be. Let's hear some of them. And you have them in your, in your outline here as well. Um, so verse 19, this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It's funny because John's like, he didn't deny, but he does deny. He denies that he is the Christ. I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? and he said I am not are you the prophet and he said no so they said to him who are you we need to give an answer to those who sent us this is why we get the idea this is an official interrogation we've been sent to interrogate you and we need to provide a report back so John this courtroom scene is kind of set so let's talk about who John is not you guys with me All right, good. You're with me? That's good, because I'm just going to keep going, even if you're not, if that's all right with you. Okay, I am not the Messiah. So the term Messiah, and you've probably heard this if you've been around, or the term Christ, in, in your Bible it says, I am not the Christ. The word Christ in Greek is a translation or it's a verb that means anointed. And in Hebrew, the word for the anointed one is the Mashiach or the Messiah. And so the Messiah... The Messiah, there were expectations about this. The Lord's anointed. Who were people that got anointed? People that got anointed in the Old Testament. There's only a few. There's only a handful of types of people that get anointed in the Old Testament. Name one. Yell it out. Come on. Kings. Kings get anointed. David got anointed. David was known as the anointed. Who else gets anointed? Priests. Aaron and his sons get anointed. They get anointed, oil and perfume poured out on their turbans. And so when they're walking around, you can, you can smell them coming, right, with perfume. That's the idea, the anointing. And then one other. Well, Jesus is, Jesus does, um, and that is more New Testament, but I'll let that slide over there. I appreciate it. I see that hand, though. Um, prophets. Prophets. There are prophets who get anointed. So prophets, priests, and kings get anointed, and there was an expectation Particularly in the Old Testament and moving into the late Old Testament, as well as moving into the New Testament era. We have these 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament being written and, and um, the New Testament being written. We have 400 years of this, these expectations in other Jewish literature. It's, it's called um, Second Temple Judaism or the Intertestamental Period. And during that time, it's not, sometimes people call it the 400 silent years. But it's not silent. There's actually a lot of stuff that's written during that time. And during that time, you have a lot of expectations about who this Messiah would be. And some people thought he was more of a kingly Messiah. And they would look for him to raise up a military as a king would. Or some people looked at him as a priestly Messiah. And that he would reform the temple. Or some people looked at it as a prophetic Messiah. That he would come like Elijah and turn the hearts back. But all that to say there was no uniform idea of who the Messiah was. And and John says, I'm not the Messiah either. I am not the anointed one. But the Messiah, the expectation would be the Messiah would be someone filled with God's power and with God's spirit who would work some saving miracle on behalf of God's people. That was the expectation, especially coming out of the late New Testament where the Babylonians come in and they lay waste to everything, and then the Persians take control, and then here come the Greeks, and by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Jesus, you got the Romans, and there's this question about like, hey, are we, our all, are we God's people or what? Like, we're being ruled by all these other people and this expectation that God would work through his anointed one. To bring the people and bring the nation back to a place where they had autonomy and they would serve the one true God by themselves, essentially, not under Roman rule or Greek rule or Persian rule or Babylonian rule. The Messiah would be someone filled with God's power and God's spirit who had worked some saving miracle on behalf of God's people. And John said, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. I am not the Christ. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And there was an expectation, especially during that time. Um, in the book of Malachi, book of Malachi, that's the place in your Bible where all the pages stick together because you have it's in the minor prophets, all right? Um, I'm not saying that's true because a lot of you guys read the Bible a lot, so I'm not, look, in my Bible then, only in my Bible. Okay. Um, but Malachi, in the book of Malachi, um, there's, there's, a, there's a prophecy, Malachi prophesies that God will send a prophet in the last days. And it says this in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now, if you read the Bible in Hebrew, if you read the Bible in Hebrew, um, this is somewhere in the middle of because it's the law, the prophets, and the writings. The last book in the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles, okay? But when the Bible gets translated into Greek in the 2nd century BCE, I'm totally in the weeds. I'm totally, hang with me on this, okay? To 2nd century B.C., the, Bible gets, the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek and they divide it up basically how our Bibles are divided up in the Old Testament, okay? Where the minor prophets are the last books. And the last book of the Bible is, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And the last verses of Malachi are the ones we just read, so, if you're a Greek speaking Jew and you're reading your Old Testament and it ends, the very last expectation is God's going to send Elijah. It's the same reason why today, if you go to a Passover meal, a Seder meal, they leave a Jewish Seder meal, they leave a chair open for Elijah, expecting that he's going to come. It's the last word they expect Elijah. And so they ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Now, some of you might be saying, I've read the other Gospels, and Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says that John the Baptist is indeed Elijah, or at least in the spirit of Elijah. Now, here's the deal. I do think that Jesus sees John the Baptist as the Elijah who is to come, but John here is trying to make a point, and his point is going to be this. Who am I? I am nobody. That's the the ultimate point that John the Baptist is going to make here. That you guys have all these ideas about all these important people that are supposed to come, because when John talks about who he is, he doesn't even give himself a name. All he says is, I'm just a voice. I'm nobody. And so he answers, Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. And he goes on, Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? If we look at verse, uh, what verse are we in? Somebody tell me what verse we're in. We're in verse twenty-one. Are you the prophet? And he said no. So he has. He's like, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. And then he gets really. It's only. It's two letters in Greek. Ooh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the prophet. The prophet is in in Deuteronomy chapter eighteen. Moses says, Look, if you guys go off the rails, if you guys lose faith and you start blowing it, what I'm going to do, God's going to send a prophet like me. God's going to send a prophet like me to get you back on track. And so there was this, this person, this personage that, that grew up, this, this idea of the, the prophet. And we'll hear more about it in the Gospel of John. Um, but the prophet is one of those intertestamental persons that, that shows up or that, that they, they start to build the ideas of who is this prophet. Um, but he just says, no, I'm not the prophet. And then he says, "Um, so who is this? So, So they say, well, who are you? We need to give an answer. And he said, 123, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John says, who am I? Who am I? I am nobody. There were no traditions about the one crying out in the wilderness. This was, this, he uses this, this, is from Isaiah, where Isaiah is saying that people are coming back from Babylon and what you need to do is you need to, like, you need to repair the roads on the way home so that people can come back. And what John says is he's all, hey, I'm this guy in the, out in the distance in the wilderness like way out here i'm i'm way out here and i'm saying prepare the way of the lord you can barely hear my voice i'm way out in the distance and i'm screaming out the lord is coming He's on a chariot, and what we have to do is we have to repair the roads, we have to build the bridges, all these ravines and all this stuff. We've got to because when, when a king is gonna come through and the people have not prepared the way, the king's gonna be upset. The king's like, weren't you expecting me? And so John the Baptist is like, hey, look, fill in the gaps, all these valleys, we gotta fill these in. We gotta make way because the Lord is coming. And John says, I'm that guy. I'm not even in the entourage. I'm just the guy they send ahead to say God's coming. So make make way for him. What am I? I'm just a voice. I'm not the prophet or Elijah or the Messiah. I'm just a guy. I'm no one. I'm just a voice. I'm the herald at the beginning of the delegation telling people that the Lord is coming, so fix the roads and ready the pathways for him and his entourage. And to punctuate this, he says, look at 125. They said, then why are you baptizing if, neither, if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And I think what they're saying is like, it seems like you're doing something official. So why, how are you able to do something official if you're a nobody? And John answered and said, look, 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 I'm baptizing with water, but among, among you right now is standing someone and you don't even know it. And then he says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, here's the deal. Why the strap of a sandal? You guys have heard this a hundred times if you've been in the church. Why? Okay. Okay disciples if you followed somebody if you followed a rabbi you were expected to do all kinds of things for the rabbi like cook the rabbi dinner make do the rabbi's laundry like you were you were a disciple you were a learner you were there it's like an intern today like we make people do all kinds of you like go get the coffee that's what you do okay you do everything for for your master but if you're a disciple there were still limits on what you should do like no disciple was ever asked to take their master's shoes off. It was beneath them. The only people who would take off other people's shoes are slaves. That's it, slaves. And what does John the Baptist say? Someone's coming. I am not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off for him. disciple, slave, and he's, and he's saying, look, I'm nobody. I am nobody. And this is why I think when we, when we talk about this, what is John saying? He's just saying, he, I, I know who I am, and it's not much. I'm just a voice. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And this person is standing right in the middle of you, and you don't even know it. And that's one of the themes in the Gospel of John is how do people become enlightened to understand who exactly is Jesus? And John, John is going to say, this is how I knew who Jesus was. That's what's coming up. But he gets first to say, who am I? I'm nobody. And we'll reflect a little bit on, I mean, how does John have all this confidence? Like confidence. Confidence to call people out to be confrontational and this humility to just say, look, I am nobody. I'm just a voice. All right, so John, John says, this person standing among you don't even know it. Look at verse 129. So now we move to the next day. Day two. So the official delegation is like, I mean, what do you So imagine you're part of this delegation and you come down to interrogate John? You're like, are you the I'm not the Messiah? He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. Go back to your people and tell them I'm the voice. Not the shit, not the TV show. I don't know if John sang. He might have sang. I don't know. Okay. Um All right, here we go. So he goes on. Look at 129. The next day. He saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Why? How does this all work together? Um, and, and John is going to say, look, the reason, I, the reason I know who this person is is because while I was baptizing and God sent me to baptize and while I was baptizing, and we read about this in the other Gospels, that while he's baptizing Jesus, he sees the Holy Spirit descend like a dove or technically it's also like a pigeon. Okay? I, it's probably a pigeon, to be honest, everybody. I know, it sounds really weird because we're like, a dove, it's all clear. Like in Israel, there are no doves. Like <laughs> There's pigeons, okay? There's pigeons. There's actually huge rooms. They're called columbariums and they have pigeons everywhere. Um, anyway, the Spirit descends like a pigeon. But John sees this and, and that's how he knows exactly, he knows exactly about Jesus. So God has revealed this to John. John doesn't have the innate knowledge of who the Messiah is or who Jesus is, but God reveals it to him. And he points it out, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now here, this is where we get into John's testimony. He confesses, I'm not the Christ, but now he's going to confess, he's going to testify about who Jesus is. And this is the first thing. Jesus is, first of all, behold, the Lamb of God Who takes away the sin of the world. All right, so this is pretty familiar. You guys have heard this before the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is a very familiar term in Christianity, but here's the deal this term doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, it also doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. In other words, John is kind of coining a phrase here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and I, I said I wasn't going to get too far in the weeds on this, but there's actually among commentators, like nobody really agrees about what exactly this means. Like the Lamb of God, how many lambs are there? You got probably Passover lamb is kind of the biggest thing, but I don't know if you knew this, but you don't have to use a lamb for Passover. Okay, Lamb of God. There's a Lamb of God in Isaiah 53, 7, the lamb that is led to the slaughter. There's the lamb in Genesis 22 and Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac and Isaac says, where's the lamb? And, Isaac sa- and, um, and Abraham says, um, the Lord will provide a lamb. That's three. You've got the daily sacrifice in the temple, Exodus 29 is a lamb. Um, and later in the book of Revelation, Jesus will show up as a lamb who is, um, who's worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because the lamb was slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people. The one thing that every lamb has in common, every lamb that is killed in the Old Testament for cultic purposes, is that every lamb has part of it deliverance and forgiveness. That when God wants to deliver his people, like Passover, he says, use a lamb. When God wants to do the daily sacrifice and deliver people from their sin, use a lamb. And even in that intertestamental period, what comes up is that there will be a lamb, kind of a lamb warrior, that we see in the book of Revelation. This lamb that shows up, and the lamb has been killed with its throat slit, but it's standing up like, yeah, what up? The lamb standing but slain. And he's like, I can take anything. The lamb warrior. And here we have this example. Probably I think this is what what John is doing here is what John the Baptist is saying whatever when God is going when he says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's saying God is going to deliver his people through that man, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God is going to offer, Jesus is going to offer the deliverance and salvation from God. And he's going to take up and remove the barrier of sin. It's interesting because even that word, the word, um, it says he takes away the sin of the world. That word can also mean that he just he also picks it up and bears it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes up the sin of the world. And this idea that Jesus will bear our sin. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating. But John, I. Like I said, John the Baptist is a very interesting person, and he actually coins this phrase theologically. So Jesus is, first of all, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What else is Jesus? 132, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a pigeon, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John, again, is testifying to what he saw. This is how he knows that Jesus is the one. While he was baptizing, you have the Spirit descend in the form of this dove pigeon, right? He comes down, and the, it, doesn't, it doesn't dissipate. Not like in the Old Testament when somebody empowers somebody and the Spirit comes upon somebody. Usually what happens in the Old Testament is so, the Spirit comes upon somebody and empowers them for a time, for a season. Like a guy like Samson, empowered for a season. Like a guy like David, empowered for a season. Empowered for tasks. But then that 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 anointing, that spirit, it moves on that, uh, for a season. But here with Jesus, John says, the spirit comes on him and does not, it's not for a season. The spirit comes and remains. It's actually the word later on when you talk about abiding, when we abide in Jesus, it's the same word. The Spirit comes and abides in Jesus, lives in Jesus. And John says this, so it remains in him, it abides in him. Um, This is what allows Jesus to pour out that Spirit in the way that John, that I am able to pour out water. So John says, look, I baptize with water. He will baptize with spirit. The same way I pour out water on people, this one, Jesus will pour out the spirit on people. So I'm able to baptize with water. He will be able to baptize to pour out God's spirit. And there's other places where John is making this point. I'm baptizing with water, but one is coming that will baptize with God's Spirit. And this is what is being said. The power of God and the outpouring of God's presence. When John is saying this, when he's saying the Spirit has descended on Jesus and Jesus is going to be able to baptize, to pour out the Spirit, what he's saying is that the power of God and the outpouring of God's presence is at hand and at the hand of Jesus I mean, first of all, I, just take a step back from this for a second. Just, I mean, let's just think about this for our own lives. Not just historically, like it's awesome to think about what's going on here, but the power of God for salvation and empowerment to the tasks that need to happen in this world in order for human thriving to take place, for salvation to take place, the power of God for that to happen is at the hand of Jesus. And in the same way John the Baptist can just pour out water, Jesus can say, it's time to pour out my Spirit. I need a person. I need a person on whom I can just empower with the Spirit. And we read in the New Testament, we read about this idea that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are baptized in the Spirit. That there is empowerment by the Spirit. There is identity in the Spirit. And Jesus Jesus has the power To simply say, it's time to pour out my spirit on this person. It's time for this person to be empowered for ministry. It's time for this person to know who they are. It's time for this person to be sealed by my spirit. It's at the hand of Jesus and John. John is the, you don't believe me? Listen to the testimony of John. That's what what the gospel John is saying. Listen to what John is saying. Jesus has showed up. God's power is at hand and at the hand of Jesus there will be baptism in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. John has said, I am not the Messiah, but the Messianic age has begun and that's your guy right there. That's the guy. I confess and I will not deny, I'm not the Christ Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then finally in 134, and to, to, to conclude this courtroom scene, he says in 134, I have seen and I have borne witness, this is the Son of God. The idea here is that this is the chosen one. He is the chosen one. There's actually a textual variant in some of the earlier manuscripts that says, I, "I bear witness that this is the chosen one of God, the chosen one of God. Jesus is the chosen one of God. Like forget LeBron James, like, who cares, right? The chosen Whatever. Like, Jesus is the chosen one. Like Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Behold the Lamb of God, the chosen one of God. And with this, the gospel writer closes his first section, this first testimony of John the Baptist. And John has given his testimony. He's deflected glory and interest away from himself. I'm not the Christ. I'm a voice. And he's drawn attention to Jesus powerfully and intriguingly. I mean, he has, he's piqued everyone's interest. He's coined a new phrase alluding to who he is and what he will do. He's the Lamb of God who baptizes with the Spirit and is the chosen one of God. Two things about John the Baptist that I want us to kind of put and get into our hearts. Um, Two things that I think you've got to do in any life of faith, I think any life you've got to do, the first thing um, is this, you've got to know who you are. I think as I grow as an adult, as I grow in maturity, I mean, like I'm 50 years old, but I f- still feel in a lot of ways like I'm growing up, like I'm still learning who I am. Like one of the me- most significant things that we can do is just have a clear sense of who we are. I, what I love about John the Baptist is John the Baptist knows exactly who he is. And he knows it so much that he's, he's willing to be confrontational with people. He's willing to, like, not answer the questions or to answer them curtly or do whatever. But look, he doesn't care. He knows exactly who he is. But the best thing about John the Baptist is not only that he knows who he is, and I would encourage everybody in here, if you feel like, look, I still, I don't have a great... God God has a way of confirming our identities in Christ. And I would say this, look, the, the hand... The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that identity is at the hand of Jesus. Ask Jesus, Jesus, who am I? Like, that's a great question. I think that's a great question. If you're wondering, who am I? Or what else is there about me? Like, that's a, these are good questions. But the other thing about John the Baptist that I think is helpful for us is, John the Baptist doesn't just know who he is. He knows who he is in relationship to Jesus. Like John gets Jesus right and that's how he knows exactly who he is. And I feel like in our culture, we, we people look for themselves and look for themselves and search for themselves and spend time, you know, backpacking through Europe or whatever. I don't know. If you did that, there's no, look, there's no, there's no shame in that. Like these are important things, right? You walk the Camino Santiago or you go on a pilgrimage or whatever. Like that's all fine, okay? Um, but the idea that Finding who you are, the pathway to that is knowing who Jesus is. And John knows who he is because he has the confidence that he has as well as the humility that he has. And what I find is that people who really know who they are, they really know who they are, they have a high degree of confidence. They know who they are, but they also have a pretty strong sense of humility. They know who they aren't. I'm not the Christ. I'm not anyone important. I'm just a voice crying out, but I know what I need to do, and that is to cry out in the wilderness. I know Jesus, and because I know Jesus, I know who I am. I know I have skills and gifts and calling because they are at the hand of Jesus. And I know, I know that I come behind Jesus that I follow after Jesus. I don't lead the way. I get behind Jesus. And I guess the question to both you and me is just this are we able to live that out? Like, as we understand that, are we able to live that out? To live with the identity that God has given us, the calling that He has given us. Jesus is the Lamb that is slain, but standing. He's purchased for Himself. People from all over the world, including me, purchased by God, purchased by Jesus. That I know who I am. He's delivered me, He's forgiven me, He's baptized me with His Holy Spirit. I know who I am, and I know what I need to be doing. I'm a voice.